Hello, welcome to the Tech for Good podcast. We are very passionate about two things, technology and our world. In each pod, we will be interviewing some fascinating people, business leaders, but those with a special interest in solving the biggest issues facing humanity today. Think the environment, think healthcare provision during a pandemic, think global social injustice. If you want to know more about technology's immense potential to fix and transform, then you're in the right place. In this episode, I speak to Al Kingsley. Al is CEO of edtech company NetSupport and an influential voice on the topics of education and technology in the UK. During COVID-19, the way young people learn changed dramatically and digital tools became essential. In the interview, Al talks about using technology in the right way, how NetSupport has had to adapt its products and his belief in the future of education. But first, as children return to classrooms, I asked him if teachers are fully prepared for the new normal. I think that the simple answer on the whole would be an absolute yes. So I think there's a, there's a real record of a well done in terms of what's been achieved so far. And we know the education profession more than ever is built on very much reflective practice, looking at what's worked well, looking at what hasn't worked well, and trying to find ways to adapt. So I think right now, you know, at the same time, we've got to recognize that our educators aren't superhuman. And the thing that's needed most of all at the moment is support and time. And time's probably the most important one. We often hear the narrative at the moment about catch up, catch up, you know, and, and if you work within the education space, the first thing you, when you hear those words is, is a little bit of, my goodness, you, you're out of sync with the, with the narrative and what's actually happening in schools. If there's any catch up right now, it's about relationships and trying to meet the needs of our young people from their time away from school, helping foster their relationships with their peers, getting back into that kind of mindset. And the things they've missed most of all, you know, I would argue have been much more about, you know, the arts and sports and activities that they have not been able to do. So I think in, in one sense, yes, teachers are absolutely in a position and prepared for a post pandemic. Much of what we want to do is what we did before. But at the same time, that that reflective nature says we've learned some lessons and those are lessons we can build on to hopefully improve moving forward. Is I ask you, is one of those lessons around technology and, and obviously teachers have had to embrace technology to, to kind of enable remote learning over the last year. In your view, what does kind of post-COVID education look like when you consider the technology side of things as well? Well, you're absolutely right. Technology has become kind of one of the, the forefront narratives over the last year or so. Uh, and, and the buzzwords we've heard lots about have been remote learning. And that in itself is a term that has different meaning to different people. Remote teaching, blended learning, all those kind of strands. And I suppose the truth of it is, um, when we move forward, the most important thing is, you know, those key pillars of it's the interaction and relationship between staff and students. And that's something that's never more than effective than in the classroom. But we've also learned that whilst many t teachers were forced to fast track their digital skills, as were many students and parents, to be fair, as part of this journey, it's highlighted some areas that have worked well and some areas that, frankly, we need to make sure stay on the radar and become embedded. So I guess the first one, like in any profession, was an absence of you know quality, consistent CPD. So a lot of teachers were trying to spin a number of plates in terms of supporting learners and acquire digital skills. Uh, and tools in some cases, 
to really kind of meet those needs. What we've seen though is where things have been successful has been not the narrative of you need to do X hours front of screen, this debate between synchronous, the, the real time teaching and interaction between the teacher and students and asynchronous, the offline, but finding that right blend, the mix between the two, and also tailoring that based on the needs and the particular cohort of each age group, clearly different ages, different children, some with special educational needs need different levels of interaction and nurture. So understanding that actually bite-sized chunks, the way that things are made accessible, recognizing with the challenges digitally that not all young people had access to an independent device straight away. So some things could be done synchronously, but some things could be recorded as exemplars or things that children could access at different times of the day. Finding ways that technology has supported um, better communication and collaboration. Um, so uh, many teachers, for example, have reported that ironically, whether they're a Google or a Microsoft school, if they're using Teams, some of those back channels have, uh, have facilitated far greater conversation and collaboration between staff when before, you know, they were just walking in the building into their classroom and off or in a bit of a silo for the day. So there's lessons to learn from that. There's also things that parents have fed back. You know, schools have made a huge effort in terms of communication, and we want to build on that in terms of not only how we share resources and, and homework and, and so on, but also just feedback of what's happening in school, successes that are going on. Parents' evenings, using technology to facilitate online parents' evenings, that's really helped um, engage with some of our harder-to-reach families. And I think for a lot of families, they recognize that that's, you know, a more practical, more time-saving and it's something we might come on to, but you know, a lot of these strands are also about finding that balance between delivering and making sure we've got the right balance for well-being. There's only so much people can do, and actually, as well-being gets pushed down the narrative, actually, productivity and impact also gets impacted. So, time-saving tools, the way technology has helped, absolutely helps and supports that other narrative as well. You've mentioned many things there that may form what you might call a digital strategy for schools. Do you think schools need help putting together kind of a longer term strategy for digital education? Because it's, it's probably fair to say that a lot of the activity over the last year has been quickly put together and, and you know, not much strategizing. Obviously, as, as we look longer term, do you think they need that support? I think the simple answer is yes. Um, those who know me will probably hear, expect my answer to be more along the lines of hell yes, because... Um, digital strategies are key. And I think it's because, you know, often when I, when I say that phrase, there's a sense of fear and trepidation. What does that mean? I'm not a techie. How, how does that be quite such a high priority? But if we actually think about what a digital strategy really means, it's a reflection and review of all the technology that you have within your school at the moment. But more important, what do we want to try and improve? How could do using different tools or different ways of engagement um, improve learning outcomes, improve engagement with our young learners, you know, different technologies, how that might make teaching and learning more stimulating, more, more fun for them. And then you have to kind of think that that's a narrative as in any organization that involves a lot of stakeholders. So whether it's looking at what your senior leadership, your objectives are for your school development plan through to safeguarding, through to the concepts of data protection through to how we make sure it's accessible for all. So looking at our SEND children, uh, keeping the techies as part of the dialogue, not surprising them with a great new shopping list of tools they like and finding your, to use the phrase, building on sandy land because your infrastructure won't support it. Um, through to that conversation that none of us like to have, the, the finance one. And it's been a bit of a bugbear of mine and it's, it's a legacy issue. You know, historically, schools often the narrative about in, in injecting technology and extra resources into a school 
happen at a point in the year where there's a narrative of, hey, we've got this much left over to spend in the budget. What do we need? And actually that short vision of we've got X to spend, what shall we buy is really ineffective. It's much, much better to say, where do we want to end up over the next five years? And the availability of funds will simply gauge the speed that we arrive at that ultimate destination. And so if we start by saying what are we trying to achieve, and then the conversation becomes, so now we're all on the same page, what are the stepping stones? Uh, you know, and actually, ironically, a digital strategy going forward starts with looking back, what's worked well so far? You're much more confident investing in more of something that's worked well than you are in the things you don't know quite what was, what's happened to them. Hello, I'm Daniel Brigham, editor of Tech for Good magazine. I hope you're enjoying this podcast, and if you want more, you can head over to techforgood.net for some compelling and thought-provoking stories. From high-tech insect farms that could solve world hunger, to a global mission to counter the spread of COVID-19 disinformation, we've got Tech for Good covered. You can read and subscribe at techforgood.net. As, as more and more learning kind of moves online or, you know, uses technology, how do we ensure kind of safety online for, for our learners? Like, that's obviously it's such a critical piece of this, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and I suppose it starts with that, that foundation layer, but all schools, um, certainly if we're talking in, in the UK context, operate alongside the guidelines. So the Keeping Children Safe in Education Act, Prevent Duty, and that puts some basic layers in terms of schools' obligations to keep our young people safe online when they're using technology. And that starts with the simple things of um, monitoring and filtering where they can go so they don't visit websites with inappropriate content, alongside filtering and checking that if children are searching for terms that might place them at risk, whether it's in, in forums where they might be engaged in or, or at risk of child sexual exploitation, online bullying, radicalization, whatever the topic may be, there are tools there to actually monitor and shepherd them. As we, children get older, we also need to make sure there are tools that give the children a voice to share their concerns, report concerns back into trusted sources in the schools. And if we think about the, you know, the, the engagement with social media, the opportunities for bullying and other activities that can happen very easily, again, that's a really key factor. But alongside all those tools, and there's no doubt the more you give children access to technology and resources, no, no more so than the last 12 months, you need to have those safeguards in place. I think the biggest one that everybody recognizes is what's referred to as digital citizenship, which is really equipping our children with the, the skills they need to challenge the validity of information, to understand the implications of information and data that they share, where they store data, their kind of lifelong digital footprint. And, 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 you know, if we think about what's happened over the pond with elections and debate and narratives in the UK over different topics, the most important skills are for young people to actually be able to be critical thinkers, to actually know how to validate. And that then forms into a much bigger narrative about equipping our children, not just with knowledge, but skills for life. So, so the two go hand in hand, but I would much rather have every child a fantastic digital citizen and not need to worry so much about the other tools that go with it. That's interesting. Surely, like today's generation and and, the, and today's school children are going to be are going to grow up to be far more digital literate than 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 I my generation certainly was, even though we were brought up in in kind of an age of technology. So that there is a positive spin on that, isn't there? In the sense that you you feel like that that knowledge will be there. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, certainly, I think we'd say, look, the last twelve months, 
you know, everybody's digital literacy has improved. You know, many might might measure that in simply their their skill set on Zoom or Meet or equivalent tools, uh, and some on different devices they're not used to. Uh, we we have this kind of old kind of definition of the digital natives, you know, um, that are, are the young people that have been brought up with familiarity of using technology. But I think it's also really important to remember that just because someone has confidence with how to use and access technology and how to go places, we shouldn't therefore assume that they also have the skills to keep themselves safe and understand the implications that go with it. So I think, you know, assumption is never a good thing when we're talking about safeguarding our young people. So re regrettably, no matter how much we equip and skill them, we also need to make sure we take our responsibilities first and foremost to keep them safe. Tell us about net support, Al, and the, and the role you think it could play as the worlds of education and technology combine. Yeah, I mean, we've we've been around 32 years, uh, and so we've been very much at the heart of the education space. And, and when I say the heart of the education space, that's that our technology is very much evolved through co-production. And so that means working with educators to try and develop solutions that meet a current need. And that's really important because sometimes the narrative is to create solutions and then create a need to kind of convince people of that need. Uh, you know, and I'm very much focused around that longevity. But if we think about some of the topics that we've just discussed, we've developed solutions that sit on the perimeter of your school and keep an eye on all the technology, all the devices and resources you've got so that you know they're operational. So, that, you know, that hard, hard spent public money, you know, that the devices are all available when they need to be. And more importantly, to know how they're used and if they are being used effectively. And then around that, if you've got a footprint on every machine, you can do that safeguarding. You can monitor what's going on and make sure you keep young people safe. And then we think the last 12 months, well, we've had for the last 25 years, classroom instructional technology, the bit that lets the teacher front of the class see what's going on in the kids' machines. And, and as I would refer to it, lock, stop and block at a very high level. You know, eyes to the front of the class, stop playing on your keyboards, look what's happening on my screen and that kind of interaction. Well, of course, COVID has changed the definition of the classroom, which certainly has for a while. And so we had to respond again in co-production and develop cloud-based technology that means that the teacher can be in one location and the children can all be in different locations. And why that's key is because rather than thinking about technology within physical boundaries, if we come back to the idea of teacher and student confidence using tools, it's much better to develop solutions that can be used just as well in the classroom as out of the classroom. They build that insurance policy that you don't have to flip platforms, flip tools, depending on what happens. And none of us, I don't think, are sufficiently confident to bet against there might be another wave, there might be bubble closures, uh, there might be a variant in the future, whether it's next year or in 10 years' time. And so if we start thinking about lessons learned, it makes sense to say, well, as, as vendors, as much as those working in the edu space, you've got to take those lessons on board and adapt solutions that are really going to be useful whenever. In, in the way that the pandemic has kind of changed education and, and maybe shifted it on a slightly different path, has it done the same for your company? You, you say you had to kind of quickly move to a cloud-based kind of solution in that area. Is this a more permanent thing for your company going forward, do you think? Yeah, I think, I think the, biggest, the biggest word I would always say is choice. If, if you provide schools and customers in whatever space with choice, you're in a much better position. Anybody working in either education or technology who thinks they're there they have the solution today and that's it. it is a full onto themselves because the landscape's always changing. We're always learning. And I think, yes, absolutely. We take our experience, but recognize that depending on how the landscape change, we have to constantly evolve. And, and it is about evolution rather than revolution. It's not about trying to do completely different things. 
because again, it has to be what meets the needs. And probably the best example of that is if we think over the last 12 months, no teacher wants to be handed a great new solution that's got 500 toolbar buttons and a, and a, a you know, a three month learning course before you can actually get the most out of it. Simplicity wins the race. What we want is easy tools that teachers have confidence in and that young people can access no matter what device. And the no matter what device bit is, well, our young people were at home on PCs and Chromebooks and MacBooks and iPads and Android tablets, and in some cases, Xboxes. So what we don't want is software that's too specific to a, a, an individual platform. That device agnostic is another really key, key strand. Really interesting stuff, Al. I want to talk a bit more about you and because, you know, I've, I've looked into your career and you've had a, a really fascinating kind of path. And it's fair to say you've got your fingers in, in many pies in this kind of area. You say you have little time for corporate marketing speak. How does that translate, that kind of philosophy translate into who you are as a business leader and <laughs> as someone who uh, comes on podcasts and talks about these things? Corporate marketing speak, you know, to me, it's just noise. You know, everyone <laughs> likes to be a hunter gatherer or a farmer in the sales market, you know. We're all going to be out there and harvest our low-hanging fruit. I could go on with 101 different phrases. <laughs> but but what, what's the fundamentals of products, business, education? It, it's all about how we communicate with people. And I think straight-talking language, the way that you engage with people in normal life, is a good starting point for building trust. And, and particularly in education, it's about trusted solutions, people who are actually invested in the sector, not just trying to, to make a buck out of the sector. And so I think sometimes all those kind of that language just disengages from what we're all about. Uh, and, and it doesn't help. You know, one of the, the narratives, particularly within the technology space, which we always have to fight against and, and why I'm so proud of the, the fact we've been going 32 years, is that unfortunately there's always going to be some that take the kind of smoke and mirrors approach to selling products. Use this and this time next year your children will all get A stars on every exam, you know. If it isn't evidenced and research-based, then frankly, it does no credit to anybody else who's developing solutions in the market. And I think that's the same in the corporate space. So, so within reason, that sense of transparency, say it as it is, co-produce, so get people's advice on board. Don't be scared to say, you know what, what we've got here isn't good enough. We need to go back and add to it, revise it, reshape it. Actually, is the difference between having a, a, quick, a quick win versus long-term success. And so those that know me, and I'm always happy to, to chew the fat and talk about these topics, will know I'd rather have that direct conversation than get bamboozled with all the, the latest buzzwords. Not for me. Is that a helpful approach in education specifically, do you think? Well, you know, I, 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 mean, I could say slightly tongue in cheek. When you first arrive working in the education space, and, and, I, and I've had the best part of 30 years to get used to it, pretty much everything is a, is a shortened abbreviation, no matter what the topic. So it's like learning a different language. But again, if we talk to our young people in school, what's the thing that teachers emphasize most? It's about communication. It's about explanation. It's about developing that kind of thinking. And I think people just want to be, have an open and honest relationship, be transparent. And I think it's much better to under promise and over deliver than it is to try and claim that you are the next best thing, you know, and, and if you're lucky, you develop solutions or you develop services that tick both those boxes. But you're a brave person to put your name on that until you've actually got some evidence and some feedback. Do you want to keep up to date with the latest in enterprise, technology and digital transformation? Visit digitalbulletin.com for news, long reads, thought leadership and so much more. That's digitalbulletin.com.
one or two kind of moments over your career Al that I don't want to say shaped shaped who you are today because that sounds a bit dramatic but you know sort of laid laid the foundations for your kind of perspective on education and technology like what would those kind of experiences be have you got one or two that you can sort of look back yeah, on? yeah it's a difficult one I suppose the very simple one is more of an advice front um you know and, I, and I'll credit my father with this which is he reminded me that you know you're born with two ears and one mouth for good reason and you should use them <laughs> inappropriate proportions uh, and there is absolutely a, a sense of that um, the reason why I find education such a leveler for me and a real value to wearing my business hat is is is, is that simple d distance that in business when you come up with a great idea it becomes your kind of intellectual property you keep it a secret it gives you a competitive advantage and in education the first thing people do when they when they're successful is they share it and they share it with their peers and it's very refreshing and it might sound that it's really hard to reconcile those two mindsets, but actually it's, it's absolutely practical for a business. If you're willing to give as much as you try to take and you you always contribute, you'll always in the long term will have a more su sort of successful route. And along the way we've developed and come up with ideas for products. Some have been super successful and some have been spectacularly not. Um, and you either kind of try and hide that, or you take the view, which again, we would share with a young person, which is, you know, failure is but a step on the way to success. It, you've got to try things. And, and all these things, it's, it's kind of uncanny how they all feed back. One of the first conversations and narratives we were trying to share as, as school leaders around our schools at the start of the COVID pandemic was to give teachers a bit of a green light to say, go ahead and take risks. And by risks, I mean, try things try different things. Some will work, some will fail, but we have to have the confidence to take those risks in order to figure out how we're going to move forwards. And that's exactly the same in business. You know, if you're willing to take risks, you're, you're more likely to achieve success somewhere along the journey. What are the risks that you're taking now then, Al? What's your kind of personal mission right now? Well, talking to you and being so open, I guess. <laughs> um, well, I mean, the, take a few risks. I mean, from a business perspective, the risks are you either batten down the hatches and wait for things to go quiet, or you spend extra, invest, recruit extra good people, and you try and fast track new solutions to help mitigate some of the challenges. So I've taken the risk in terms of you've got to be there. You've got to take those decisions on the confidence that you're going to do the right things that are going to add value in the broader market sense along the run. So that's on one side. On the personal sense, I suppose the biggest risk I take is um, I invest quite a lot of time, but also passion into the schools that we have. And when you make decisions, you have to be, you have to do so on the basis of why you're there. You're there to make a difference to young people's lives. Um, and so you always take risks. Um, but when you actually see the positive impact it can have, and I think not just in sense of um, educational standards, but experiences, you know, I, I want young people to leave school with happy memories of the trips they did, the things they've learned, the friendships, not just the sheet of paper with their grades on. Um, and if any of our heads are listening, of course, they're important too. Um, but, you know, it's that broader sense. So you do take risks, whether it's you speculate and you make decisions to overstaff or whether you choose to try and look at ways to grow your mat. And we've done that by taking risks, by bidding for free schools to expand our capacity to serve our local community. And with expansion comes stretch. You can never have all those people ready just to jump into the new building. 
Um, but they're calculated risks and they're part of a longer term journey. Um, and let's take the word risks and change it to opportunities. And that's a much more um, realistic sentiment, I think. Given everything we've spoken about, Al, do you, do you believe in, in, in the future of education? And do you believe that technology can not just change kind of education, but also improve it quite radically maybe for, for learners in the future? Uh, you know, absolutely. I, I have a really, really positive sense of education, but, but not to dismiss some of the core challenges. I could start with a really s sort of simple point, which is there's lots of change in education at the moment. There's lots of policies that come in that require quick adaption by schools. And the biggest challenge of all is they're always short window policy changes. In effect, there, we're going to invest some money. We want to see a result before the end of the next election cycle. Doesn't matter what colour party is, is is in is in power, and actually, what education needs is a long term strategy. It needs a fifteen year strategy because that's how long a child takes to pass through the education system. And in any organisation, whether it's business or education, it's so much easier to plan if you've got stability and a long term understanding of where your funding's coming from and what your expectations are. Where does EdTech fit in the gap? Well, it's a facilitator. Anybody who says EdTech is the solution. It is misleading. We're back to our smoke and mirrors conversation. But as a facilitator, it can help make great teachers amazing. It can help connect between student and staff. It can help reduce workload. It can help with communication between home and schools, bring closer families closer together. Um, and it sure as hell can engage, whether it's learning to do different building and measurements and distance calculations in Minecraft, in games, to using, you know, the collaborative tools that we develop to try and make lessons more stimulating and things that I'm really, really passionate about are things like augmented reality, VR, where we can make learning much more stimulating. And probably the hottest topic of all at the moment uh, is the use of artificial intelligence. Uh, and when we think about in the coming months, the ability where tools on a personalized learning journey can help young people with their retrieval practice. So, you know, asking them questions and based on their answers, it takes them on a path to develop their understanding of a topic or revisit a topic where there are gaps. And those kind of tools, in parallel to the stuff that we all kind of celebrate, the great teaching and learning that happens in the classroom, are all kind of pointers in the direction education can flow. That was the Tech for Good podcast. Listen, subscribe and rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Thank you.